This is episode 47 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Julia Soplop. Julia is a writer and documentary-style photographer whose work has appeared in numerous publications. She has a master's in medical journalism and loves delving into just about any subject and figuring out how to bring it to life through words or images. Julia's new book, Equus Rising, How the Horse-Shaped U.S. History, was released on May 14, 2020. Julia didn't grow up around horses, and if you told her four years ago that she would write a book about them, she wouldn't have believed you. But she has a lifelong fascination with documenting animal behavior that's taken her around the globe. So when her young daughters begged to start riding lessons and life began to revolve around the barn, it was the horse's behavior that first drew Julia in. Curiosity peaked, and she dove into the girls' horse books to learn more. What began innocently as light reading escalated into amassing a collection of horse literature, dashing around the country to photograph wild horses, and ultimately writing Equus Rising. Julia is a mom of three girls, a home educator, and an introvert with a terrible case of wanderlust. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. I am so excited to have Julia Soplop with me today. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carly. I'm so glad to be here. I'm happy to have you. And thank you for reaching out and letting me know that you had a fabulous book that you wanted to talk about. And uh, we're going to dive right in here. So you are a writer and photographer whose work has, been, has appeared in numerous publications, including National Geographic, that's amazing, Design Mom, Skiing, and the Summit Daily News. Can, before we jump into this, because this is a little bit different, you actually mm-hmm. aren't a horse owner, but you have right. some experience with horses. So we're going to talk about your kind of background as a photographer. Can you tell us a little bit about how that journey began for you? Yeah, so I have always been interested in documenting the world around me. Um, When I was six, I started writing a lot. And when I was seven, I got my first camera for a present. And I've pretty much been a writer and photographer for my whole life. I've also always had an interest in the sciences, so biology and public health and animal behavior. Um, My dad has always been interested in animal behavior. So when I was growing up, he would sit in his study and he'd call me in and be reading a book and say, come on, I have to show you something neat. So I think that really spurred my interest in animal behavior. And so I spent a lot of time in um, during my schooling and early in my career traveling around documenting animal behavior. I studied lemurs in Madagascar for a summer. I was a field assistant and did, um, so I was doing research, but also um, photographing animals in my spare time. I've studied sea turtles on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, photographed uh, turtles in the Galapagos Islands. So I have this sort of longstanding interest in in biology and in, in documenting nature. So that sort of led me to to horses. It's in kind of a non-traditional way. I wasn't a horse person really growing up. I uh, was never really bitten by the bug besides a few weeks of riding at camp, summer camp. But 
I started to get interested in horses first, well, kind of simultaneously through seeing my first wild horses ever. And then my daughters also started riding lessons. So when I was in college was the first time I was studying at a Marine Lab in North Carolina and saw my first wild horses as we were just sitting out having happy hour and watching the sunset across the water. It was on an island. And all of a sudden this herd of horses ran, came out from this island and ran, it looked like across the water um, to another island. <laughs> I said, what is going on? I had no idea that they were there and that really that wild horses were still, were anywhere. I kind of thought of them as a legend. And so that kind of got me thinking about wild horses. Um, and then we started making annual trips to the Outer Banks um, where there are herds, several herds of wild horses and making trips up to watch them and photograph them. Uh, and I just started getting more and more curious about their social behavior and how, why they were there and how they got there and all of that stuff. And then simultaneously, my daughters, when they were, my older daughters, when this was about three or four years ago, they were four and five, three and five. And they asked me if they could start riding lessons. And again, I was not a horse person. I was not very comfortable around horses. And they just begged and begged and begged. So I found a barn here, signed them up for lessons. And it was kind of stop and go because they were actually kind of afraid of the horses once we got there, but they got into it. And, and while they were taking lessons, I was wandering in the barn around the barn with my little one and just watching and watching and watching the horses. And I just got sucked in. <laughs> So it happens anyway. Right? The yep. Sucking you in. Yep, but that's right. Behavior is such a fascinating topic. And I'm so excited to talk with you about what you saw in the horse's behavior that really told your muse that you wanted mm -hmm. to write this book called Equus Rising. Tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to write this book. Sure. So I get, so all of these, you know, these experiences, watching wild horses and photographing them and then, and then just being around the barn and seeing, seeing horses made me very curious about them. And my, at the same time, my girls were accumulating all of these horse books, of course, because that's part of the process, right? <laughs> we're all big readers. And so I started reading books with them, some of the classics and just digging, digging deeper. So while that was happening, we are also, we also homeschool. This is our third year homeschooling. Now everybody is homeschooling, but we are, we've been doing this our third year. And so a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to put together a unit study about U.S. history that included some science and literature and history. And so I started to think about what would be kind of a unique way to do that. And I realized in conjunction with reading these horse books, I thought, wait a minute, there's something here. We could, we could sort of frame our study of U.S. history around the horse and around what role the horse played. And as I started to sort of research this, to pull something together for them, I realized that the horse was not a bit character in our country's history, but it was actually a really driving force and really helped shape uh, the development of the country for hundreds of years. And also the horse evolved in North America across the Great Plains, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And so, and I didn't know. And so that also, I love natural history. And so that was also a big, I, I started reading a lot about that. And that ties in, of course, to their behavior and why they do the things like why they spook, you know, in the way that they do and things like that. I started digging in more and putting together this, this unit study for the girls. And my girls are young. They're in elementary school. Um, but I realized that I was kind of onto something bigger and that the information that I was trying to find for them, I thought I would just grab some books, you know, kids' books and put it together. And I found that all this information was spread across many different books. There are great books about wild horses. There are books about, you know, horse care and practical care of horses. There are 
books about the Civil War and this and that, but I wasn't finding things all in one convenient package, but I was realizing that there was a good narrative here. And so I, so we did this little unit study sort of at their level. And then I realized that I really wanted to write to come to combine everything I was finding and kind of compile it for adults and young adults or teens. And that's sort of how the project started. That is amazing. And you have a copy of your book there that you could, well, a proof copy of your I book. I do. Hold up for or people watching. Yes. You. So this is a proof and it has this bar across it, which will not be there. This is not for resale, but this is the, yep, this is what it'll look like. And I don't even have it in my possession yet. Hopefully next week I will have copies of the real thing. So. <laughs> That's beautiful. And, and Thank for, those, you. for those listening in who may not know, a proof copy is what an author can order in advance of a book being distributed wide where everybody can buy it. So you can review the book yourself and make sure everything looks the way it's supposed to and that you know you, any edits that you didn't miss, you can catch right before it goes out to all the readers, right? Yep. <laughs> yes. And I have ordered many proof copies and been through many copies in this process. It happens to everyone. <laughs> yes. and then, you know, I heaven forbid that this happens to you, but it's happened where you actually have published and you think you got it perfect. And then something yes. comes up. But I'm anticipating that. Yes. <laughs> but that's the beauty of independently publishing is that you can go in and you can make those changes. That's uh, right. You know, a few may slip by, but you can go in and fix it right away. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a learning journey. It that's right. <laughs> Your book is so, it's so fascinating to me. So it, it's not just for horse enthusiasts or history buffs. Like who, who exactly is your intended audience for this book? It kind of sounds to me like it, it could be for everyone. Right. Yes. Yes. That that is my goal. So I have so I have a background in journalism, and my goal whenever I write anything is to make it very approachable for anyone. In this case, adults or teens, anyone who picks it up, um, and they don't have to be an expert in the subject matter. So I try to break everything down to a level that anybody can understand and hopefully find relatable and enjoyable and learn something from. Um, so I think it's really for anyone who is curious, <laughs> curious about our history um, and curious about horses as well. I think there's a lot in here that, you know, the more I talk to equestrian about it, I'm kind of curious because I'm coming, like I said, from a different perspective where I don't have a lot of experience with horses. Mm. But when I mention something that I found, almost no one has, has heard of it. And so it, I think that there's a lot of history that people who are absolute experts in different aspects of caring for or, you know, riding horses, taking care of horses, just really haven't encountered before. So I'm excited to, to share that with people who care deeply for horses and who I think would be interested in learning this history. So that is like, so fascinating. So I, I know that while you were doing research for the book, you mentioned uh, the Outer Banks and the wild horses that are there, and this is close to your home. What did you discover when you were watching their behavior? And then how did you infuse the behavior into the book and kind of pull the history into that? I, you know, how did you kind mm -hmm. of tie the bow around the content? So, okay. Going back to the Outer Banks, the first, some of the things that I found very interesting were I didn't, um, I wasn't very familiar with and wasn't seeing so much when you're at a barn and there are all these horses that are, you know, coming from different places and they aren't family members and there are males who are gelded, you know, you have all these different things that are not naturally occurring in nature the way that, that they typically encounter each other. And so a lot of 
So you're seeing behaviors at the barn that some are very natural horses spook. They, you know, they do, they, they interact in different ways, but they don't live in the family groups that we see in the wild. And so it was very interesting to me to go between a wild band of horses to domestic horses where you see some of the same behaviors and then you see, and then you see some very different behaviors. Something that I found that was really interesting in the Outer Banks watching, I think this was this summer, that there was a foal and we went out a couple of different nights and watched them. And the first night there was a huge storm um, and they, the band sort of went back, they were on the beach and they went back over the dunes to go find shelter in the woods back there. And there was one foal that stuck very closely to this mare and I, and they looked similar too. And I assumed that it was the mother of the, of the foal. Well, the next day, uh, we were watching them again and the, the same band came back down to the beach and the foal was nursing uh, from a different mare. And then several mares came and stood over the foal who, to shade it because it was hot, to shade the foal. It, was lying, it lay down after that. And several of the mares came over, one that we had seen the night before. And so there were all these aunties. So I realized there were all these aunties caring for this foal, um, some of which were not, you know, they were not the mother. And I found that really interesting because that doesn't, in some species that happens and in some that really doesn't happen at all. And that that foal would be considered sort of a competitor of somebody else's. So that was, that was something really interesting to see in the wild. And then this summer, I w- or last summer, about a year and a half ago, I also went out to the Pryor Mountains in Montana and Wyoming and and observed and photographed a lot of horses there, wild horses there, and got to see some interactions between uh, stallions and bachelor stallions coming in and trying to steal their mares and getting chased off. And that was really fascinating. And again, when we're at the barn, you know, at, at the barn where my girls ride anyway, usually there are, you know, males over here, females are over here, and they're not interacting so much. And so it was very interesting to see those, those types of behaviors that we don't often get to see in in a domestic setting. So anyway, those things interested me a lot. The book is not so focused on behavior. Again, there's a a natural history element. And then there's also, it explores, it kind of uses the natural history and some of the behavior to um, talk about wild horses and how essential wild horses were, how involved they were, I guess, in the development of our country in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sort of the segue between the history and the, the natural history. That makes a lot of sense. And I almost hear like a, another book in there, uh, you know, just like really getting specific about the behavior of the yep. horse that you've, that you've seen and kind of like opened up. So there could be a, maybe a third. Yes. Sequel. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to the, the history portion mm-hmm. of this, what were some of the most surprising historical facts that you uncovered mm-hmm. during your research? I'm super curious about about this without giving there away was too much. So, yeah, no, there were so so many interesting things that I was really surprised by. One, well, one thing that was really neat was that the goal, my first goal was just to, you know, tell the story of the horse and show how important of a character and how many roles it played throughout her history. But as that was happening, I realized that using the horse as a narrative thread gave me the opportunity to discuss and introduce characters, figures in history who are often left out of traditional histories, like women <laughs> and like people of color. And so that was, a, that was really neat that, that the horse could kind of help me to explore the experiences of different people, not just sort of the standard players in history, the people who were battling each other and the victors and all of those that, that we kind of learned about growing up, you know, the standard 
sort of narrow view of history. And so something that was really interesting that I found was that the Native Americans of the Great Plains who acquired horses from the Spanish who were coming into the area, like the Santa Fe area to begin with of New Mexico. And so they acquired horses and became very adept riders and, and very talented mounted warriors. And they were able to keep Europeans really at bay from the great, from a portion of the Great Plains, especially the Comanche, for about 200 years. And that was sort of the last place in the U.S., where the military, where the U.S. military had control, there was this swath in the middle of the country where, I mean, you could call it part of the U.S., but it was very much under the control of the horse nations, as I refer to the Plains people who acquired horses. And so um, something that I found was that in a lot of images that we see and things we read about the Plains, uh, the indigenous peoples of the Plains, there are men who are on horseback, you know, hunting buffalo or, or battling, and we don't see a lot of women. But the truth is that the women were also very adept riders, and they had some traditional roles like moving family groups, if they were nomadic, moving them around and becoming being in charge of that or gathering some food. But they were also galloping around the plains, you know, hunting buffalo. Sometimes they were fighting as warriors, and they were very much, they were very skilled, and that was a part of, that was a part of the culture. I found that really neat. And the Nez Pierce Native Americans, the women had a lot of uh, power. They could accumulate their own wealth and they could divorce their husbands if they wanted, wanted to. So they had, it really struck me as I, I thought they were viewed by the European settlers as having a more primitive culture, but in some ways they were miles ahead of, of you know, the white female settlers at the time. So in terms of the power that they held, that was really interesting. <laughs> but what what I love is that you took the horse and you connected it to history and then you broadened the conversation in your book to be inclusive, right? Of mm -hmm. uh, and to really explore what really is the truth of the matter. The span of the the history and the timeline of your book kind of starts at the beginning of the US and then it goes to modern day or when what's your so, timeline? Yeah, so it starts actually 55 million years ago <laughs> um with the evolution of the horse and then kind of follows the uh, the horse died out in North America by about 8,000 years ago, 11,000 to 8,000 years ago. Partially, uh, it's, it's a little bit debated the exact, you know, exactly, but there were big climate changes at the end of the ice age, big spikes in climate, in the climate. And so between that and humans had come over to the, uh, to what is now the U S to North America and were hunting horses as well. And so it's thought to be a combination of those factors, but they had wandered across the Bering land bridge before that time, luckily, um, and were in Europe and Asia. And so it traces the, the natural history there. And then, and then it jumps ahead to when the Spanish brought reintroduced the horse, um, to North America. And I make the argument that we can consider the wild, the modern wild horse as a reintroduced native species mm. versus a non-native species, which might sound silly to to argue about terms, but it kind of it matters when it comes to wild horse management and how the government considers can how they categorize wild horses and different branches of the government, different um, that manage them in different ways, kind of consider them differently. And so I discuss that in the book as well. So then, then from there, we move ahead for the next three hundred years and up to today. And I talk about some wild horse population management struggles and you know issues that are going on today I talk a little bit about the racing industry and some some of the issues they're having today and also therapies um, 
that are, that use different types of therapies that use the horse. So really it covers, so it's a really broad survey of history of American history. US history. That's amazing. And, you know, the connection to the horse has, has been there all throughout, the you know, time. you know, this is really amazing. And mm-hmm. this sounds like a very intensely researched project. Like how, how long did it take you to, you know, do your research and then put all of these concepts and discoveries and thoughts into a, a book like, like? <laughs> it took a while and it was very different research so as a journalist you know I, I typically would do some background research and then my research would mostly consist of interviews um, and this was all historical research besides some trips to go and photograph um, to go and photograph wild horses but I, I spent probably about six months reading first. And that was when I was kind of putting things together for my girls and realizing, oh my gosh, this is bigger. And then I kept digging and digging. So I would say about six months where I was, where I was sort of reading and sort of, sort of generally outlining. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it was about my first draft probably took about seven or eight months. And then I did, and then I kept adding to it and I kept research. I had some people read it and then I kept adding research to it. So I would say it took about a year of writing after and I, and I was researching sort of continuously as I was writing. So actually, I'm like I'm thinking this this would be like a ten year project because it sounds so so incredible. But it, you know, really, it's like you got the idea, you did your reading to educate yourself mm-hmm. about what direction you wanted to go, and then you mm-hmm. sat down and committed to doing the research, and yep. you got it out, you know, ready to go in about a year. I mean, that's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. So I would. It's funny because when I thought about whether I wanted to go with a traditional publisher or publish independently or, you know, submit it to traditional publishers, I thought, oh, it's so silly that it takes them a year, you know, it takes them about a year from the time you turned in your manuscript. And now I'm going, oh, I understand why it took a year because I sort of squished everything into this timeline that has been a little too stressful. And so I think that that is actually a pretty reasonable amount of time for the production. It's, you know, six months to a year. Now I understand all the work that goes in you know, once the manuscript is essentially done. Yeah. Then there's the editing and the copy editing yes. and the reading the proofs and having other people read it. Exactly. Book cover design and, you know, all the, all those goodies. And, and so yeah. I'm hearing you're, you're independently published. Why did, why did you yes. decide to go that route? So the funny thing is one of the reasons that I, that I chose to do that was because, so I am home full time with my kids and I'm mm-hmm. also uh, their home educator. And I also have a small photography business on the side. And so I thought, you know, I just don't feel like I could, if, you know, if a publisher decided on a really tight timeline, I felt like that might be too stressful. It might require tons of childcare that I couldn't really afford to do. And so I thought, let me do this on my timeline. And I also wanted, I really wanted there to be a lot of graphics involved. There are photos, there are illustrations, there are maps. And I think that's something oftentimes a traditional publisher might look at it and say, oh, we don't really need these and it's expensive to do to print these and to use those pages. So we're not going to do them. And I felt like that really was needed to tell the story and just make it really interesting and visually appealing. And so, uh, so I decided to, to publish it independently, which is a little funny because I think that I ended up, I got so into it that I think that I ended up probably doing it on a much faster timeline than a publisher would have, <laughs> would have required of me. Cause I got, I was so into it and, and really did actually do it on a pr- faster timeline than I, than I anticipated. 
but that's the beauty of independently published is you don't have to meet deadlines. You can, you can work as furiously on it or as measured on it as you Mm -hmm. like, you know, and then life, you can, you know, work around your life in order to, so there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. Yeah. And you mentioned the illustrations in the photographs and the maps and the sidebars. Talk to us a little bit about how, you know, you, you felt like those are very important for your books So talk about how they really like bring the story to life in Mm -hmm. inside of your book. And then, I also imagine you had to work with an interior designer, right, to get those all set up correctly. So actually, I so I do some graphic design, but I'm very self-taught. So I actually did the interior as well. Wow. Although it is so laborious that I don't think I would do it again. I think that I probably would hire that out. Yes, I wanted to have a lot of visuals. I think something that I found when I was doing a lot of the research too is that, I mean, history obviously can be so dry, but it can be so interesting if done well. And so I wanted to mix in both historical pictures. So I needed, um, so I found an illustrator. I had actually been following his work for a few years and I do know him personally. And he is based in Montana and he does Western style art. And he does these amazing pen and wash drawings. So they're black and white ink, sort of a classic, I guess that's classic style that you might find in older books, but he has this, his own take on it. That's so beautiful. And he lives right outside of Yellowstone. And so he does all sorts of animals. And I was just really drawn to his work. And I immediately, as soon as I started working on the book, I started picturing his style of art illustrating the book. And I wanted for the, some of the history, it's just hard to imagine. There are the Comanche who were uh, amazing mounted warriors. They would do something where one of their most impressive skills was they would slide off the side of the horse, holding on just with their foot, basically. (laughs) And they would use the horse as a shield and they would shoot arrows from around the horse's neck. But that's really hard to picture. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) How does that even physically work? And so there are things like that or barges that horses would pull. I didn't even know that horse barges were a thing that was, was a way that goods were transported on along rivers and canals. And so there were things like that that were very interesting, but hard to, for me to imagine. And I thought, I think we really need a visual here. So uh, Robert Spannering is the artist and I got up the nerve to ask him and I sent him some information about the book and, and he agreed right away that he, that he was on board. So that was really neat. And he did, I think it was 19 illustrations. And so those are mostly historical. And then I added in uh, wild horse photographs that I had taken because I wanted to, uh, you know, we're talking about different policy in the book. I talked about different wild horse management policy issues that are very complex and it's very, and they are very expensive, the, the program that we have to manage them. But as people were reading, I wanted them to remember that these are real live animals, mm-hmm. that these are moms and babies, and that they're very much alive and well today, and that this isn't something historical or theoretical, um, that, they are, that when we think about these policies, I wanted them to be thinking about these particular animals. That was, so that's why I wanted to add those photos in. And then I also added in maps because when I'm when I'm reading history, it's very confusing when you're talking about, for example, the, the Comanche had a, a territory that they patrolled very heavily in the the Southern Great Plains, and but you're thinking, okay, were there states at that time, and you know, was this part of the U.S. And you're talking about this is partially in Colorado, but it goes all the way down to to Texas. How big is this territory? So I kind of every time that I was reading and was wishing that I had a visual. I tried to add a map in and also to show kind of as the U.S. crept across from the colonies 
to or what the colonies and then uh and then to the mississippi river and then to the rockies and i tried to sort of guide people to um to show them what exactly we're talking about where where is the country right now <laughs> i love that that's so <laughs> smart i mean this is educational material mm -hmm. <laughs> and then this the relationship with your illustrator how did you manage that did you buy each image and then work with him around the rights or or how did how did your partnership with your illustrator yeah work? so he was very gracious about that because i told him right up front i don't know how much money this is going to make and really we'll probably have to work in royalties. So what we agreed on was that, so I have the, the reproduction rights for the mm -hmm. work. So he owns the work and he can sell it or, you know, do whatever he wants with it. It's his, so, but I am able to use the, you know, the scans that he sent me for the book and for, we agreed that I could use it for marketing the book as well. So I might, so sometimes I post things on Instagram or Facebook as I'm sort of advertising the book and talking about it. And then we agreed sort of on a set price per image, but that it will come out of the royalties. Mm. So that's how we arranged it. And I'm actually not really sure how, what, what is a traditional way to arrange it. That's what he, he sort of suggested that. And, um, and he's done some illustration work before. So I just said, sure. Sounds good to me. <laughs> And and you signed a contract with him, I'm sure. Yeah. So we have some, yeah, kind of a formal arrangement. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, you know, and I think that's the thing with creatives when you connect and you start to work together, you just kind of figure out what works for you. I know some mm -hmm. authors buy and get the, you know, the own the pictures yeah. and then some, and then some just do, you know, royalty splits or some, you know, that there's all sorts of different ways you can do it. But the most important thing is just to have an agreement. Right, sure, yeah, that you're you know, both on the same page. Yeah, yeah, you're not liable for for exactly. anything. And it just it sounds like it worked out beautiful beautifully, and you created a wonderful relationship with this person. And like I'm envisioning an incredible presentation that can come out of what what you uncovered while writing this book. Have you put any? Have you thought about you know going out there and doing like a speaking tour on behalf of the book and and educating people around this? You know, I think it would be, I found that I've been, you know, trying to talk up the book on, on Instagram and I found that while there's a big wild horse proponent community out there and they have been really, I think, really interested in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that they would be a very interesting audience to, to, to connect with, especially because mm -hmm. a, yeah, a lot of the storyline is about wild horses. And so I think that, yeah, I think that I've thought about sort of trying to make connections with some of the populations that, I'm, that I talk about specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I would buy, I would buy a ticket to come see you speak on this. This is, I mean, I already feel like I have a, I have a free front row seat right now, which is really cool. But I can also see you like going into schools and talking mm -hmm. about this and, mm -hmm. and just, I can just, you know, with those visuals that you had them designed for you and, and the maps and the graphics and all the things you already have, mm -hmm. it would be a really engaging and you're an excellent you know, speakers. And then I wanted, I wanted to mention too, this, this is not your first book. You also have another book. So would you share with us a little bit about documenting your world through photography? So this is here. I have a copy right here. This is documenting your world through photography. This is my little middle daughter right here. This is more of, I don't want to call it a textbook because that sounds so boring, but it's, a, it's <laughs> a, a course or a piece of curriculum for kids, introductory photography course. And what I wanted to, again, a lot of what my work revolves around things that I want to uh, make for my kids. And so I had been looking for a photography class, a way to introduce them to, to photography, because I always am taking pictures and they, you know, they're curious about trying and, and I think are old enough because like I said, I started, 
um, I had my first camera when I was seven and my kids, my oldest is nine. And so I started looking around and I just didn't really find much that was for kids that most of the curriculum is for high schoolers and you need to have a fancy camera, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a DSLR, SLR camera and be able to really understand how to use it, which we, I have those cameras they could use, but it's, it's pretty complicated for their age. And so what they need to be learning, but, but that's fine. They don't need to be using a fancy camera to learn the basics of photography. Mm -hmm. Another reason I wrote the book is because I think that beyond just, just learning, you know, the skill of photography, it also teaches kids to observe how to just still themselves, quiet themselves and just observe what's in front of them. And, you know, that's just such an important life skill to be able to see the world for what it is. I think that's really a gift for them to be able to give them that ability to start observing the world and documenting it. And also the art of storytelling. I mean, (laughs) you know, as a storyteller, but even if you're not a professional writer, we all have to be able to tell a good story to, you know, apply to college, to get a job, to sell a product to, you know, scientists need to be good communicators to tell the world about their research or, or it doesn't matter if no one understands how to use it. So I'm a big proponent of story of learning how to uh, tell stories. And so that's what, so this book is about the basics of photography, but it's also about observing and telling stories. Oh, I love that. And what is the, uh, the age range you would say for this book? Because there's so, so much yeah. they can learn, right? There's, yes. um, composition yes. and yep. lighting and just so many things. I love this. Exactly. I'm going to buy this for my niece, <laughs> but I'm sorry. What was, what's the, yeah. so I, so I market it for elementary and middle schoolers, but I have had, I mean, parents always tell me that they've learned alongside their kids. And I encourage that. I definitely encourage that. And so it's really, again, it's sort of written, it's, it's written at, you know, somewhat of a, a more basic level, but like I said, I try to write everything really approachably that I work on. And so I think it's, I think it's something that a kid could, could work through. It's helpful to have an adult to kind of guide them. It doesn't have to be a photographer, but to, there, there are um, sections where I do, so I do a lesson and then little sort of assignments. And mm-hmm. then at the end, I suggest a critique. So it's helpful to have, you know, somebody to sort of have a conversation with about it. It's really for, for anybody who wants to learn the basics. So that, that is so cool. I'll make sure to link to your books in the show notes too, so people can find out more about it. I love, Great. I love Thank that. You. So, so all the little girls out there that love horses, moms who are listening to this or anybody that's got nieces like I do or grandkids, whatever, you know, the, get this book and then go teach your child how to take pictures of horses. Like, yes, that's right. <laughs> I know because if I was a little girl, like I was, I was little and I loved photography and I had the mm-hmm. little disposable cameras and all that yep. stuff and, and carried them around. So this is, this is a great resource for girls that are crazy want to take pictures of horses. So yes. And now it's so nice because we all have phones, even if the kid doesn't, you know, they can use our phones. And you, like I said, you, a, a cell phone is all you need. You know, you don't need, or a little, you know, little sort of ki- kid's camera. Um, they're so good now that that's all you need to learn. You don't need anything fancy. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, I, and you said one other thing too, that I, I think is really cool and worth like pulling out of the conversation is that even when you're writing nonfiction, you can tell a story that's engaging with the nonfiction. It, in the, it's the same with memoir, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. You, you can craft the content to tell a story so it's not dry and actually make it an entertaining read. And it sounds very much like that's, that's yeah. how you like to write. Yes, that's how I try to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, writing, writing in and of itself has its challenges. But, but I think true. that that's a really 
lovely way to approach your work that you're doing. I've interviewed other uh, photographers on the show before, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm wondering what what would you say to another photographer who maybe wanted to start exploring what it would be like to, to develop books? Is there anything you would like wish you had known when you started out or some words of wisdom you could share with somebody else that might want to do this? Yeah. So what I found was that, so this, so this book is published through Amazon. So it's print on demand and color pages are very expensive and print. And what I've read is that print on demand color pages are even more expensive. Mm -hmm. So I sell this book in two formats. One is the paperback because I like, I still like paper. I still like paperback books the best, but I also sell an ebook version that it, that I sell on my website, not through Amazon. And so I probably make about three times as much just selling the ebook version because the print cost is so high for the color, the color pages. And so, but I still like to be able to offer that. And there's part of me that gets more excited when somebody buys the paperback because I feel like it's a, you know, it's a physical book and I don't know, I get excited about it. But I think in terms of if you're trying to, you know, make any sort of profit on it, it it's any, and it, if you want color, you know, like nice color photos, it's very expensive. So I think that's just something to keep in mind that you probably want to, to sell a version yourself, an e-version as well. It, but it's really smart also that you have it in both versions, like the paperback, because I'm, I'm just like you. I like to have mm -hmm. the books and to hold the books, but, it, but other people prefer to consume digitally. So it's, it's good mm -hmm. that you have both. And then selling it direct from your own website is the best way to make the most amount of money for sure too, yes. rather than, you know, putting it elsewhere, you know, it's yeah. like, you don't have to, you know, so you drive yeah. people to your website. That's really smart. And then how do you, uh, you specifically, how do you reach your readers? Like how do you engage people that you think would be interested in your books? So I love Instagram. That's sort of my social media platform of choice as a photographer. I love consuming what I see and I love posting there and I, I get probably the most engagement there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I write, I kind of write a lot on there as well. I also, uh, blog some and I use Pinterest. I don't use Pinterest very strategically. I have to admit, but I use it a lot. I pin any, any research I'm doing, anything just, you know, if I'm doing home design, just everything, I just, I pin stuff. And so I have reached, I think, a lot of people through there. I, when I offer homeschool resources, that's a place where people really go nuts for homeschool stuff. So yeah, so those are the main ways that I reach people. And the Pinterest drives, of course, a lot of traffic to, to my website. Yeah, that, that's, that's really smart. You're using the two channels that are like perfect for, mm -hmm. for what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I always like to answer or ask these questions because I think there's a lot of learning that can be done here. But for you, what has been the most difficult part about being an independent author? And then on the flip side, what's been like the very best part? So for me, I feel like the difficult part is that I'm, I've been working like almost full-time hours, but it's a very, but it's a portion of of my responsibility, <laughs> taking care of my kids and, and having another side business and everything. And so I think just finding the time to, you know, it's a big project to write a book and, and to publish it. I think that I've learned a lot in the process and in the future, I would 
kind of allow myself much longer timelines <laughs> mentally for how long things take. So just, yeah, finding the time to, to, to do the writing, but then also finding and allowing for the time to, to do the rest of the job and the marketing and the, the actually actual publishing work. So it's definitely, uh, a, that aspect of it is bigger than I anticipated. But the great part is that, you know, I feel like I produced the product that I wanted to and not, and it may not be the most, like I said, I, I, I was worried that a traditional publisher might not feel like all the visuals that they were, you know, wasted space. They weren't totally necessary to tell the story, but that's not the story that I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. I wanted, this is, this is how I wanted it to turn out. And so I love having the, uh, and being able to hire the illustrator that I wanted instead of one that they picked for me, even if they did agree to, to use an illustrator, I think just having the freedom to make those choices and put out, um, you know, the story that I wanted to tell is really powerful. You have a big responsibility when you're an independently published author because you not only have to write the book, but you are everything, you are the whole package, you know, you mm -hmm. have to organize and take care of everything to get it across the line, but you also have creative control and you own all your intellectual property, which mm -hmm. is really special too. I mean, you can yes. do, you can do so much with the intellectual property that you have around this. I can see a documentary. I can see so many <laughs> things with what, with what you're talking about, mm -hmm. which leads me back to, this is a question I'd really like to ask you. Why do you think it's important to supplement the traditional history or the traditional historic history education most of us received mm -hmm. with additional perspectives. Like, you know, I'm, I know that that's part of the reason why you wrote this book. So can you talk yeah. why it's so important? Yeah. So I actually wrote, I wrote an author's note at the beginning of the book, kind of talking about why, why I wrote the book. And one thing that I, I sort of make an analogy that if you think of, in this case, American history as a food web, think back to biology where a food web is made up of a lot of food chains, all of, you know, this is eating, this is eating, this is eating this. So you have all these food chains that make up the ecosystem. And so if you think about studying one event, I sort of liken studying one event in history to studying just one animal in this entire food web. It's a very limited perspective. And then if you study one event, and even if you study how that event affects the next one and affects the next one and affects the next one, if you're only studying from one perspective, which a traditional history is usually, you know, the perspective of the victor, then you just have sort of one food chain in this entire food web. And so I, so I wrote in my note that I was trying to sort of contribute a new, uh, a new perspective, a new food chain to add to, you know, to our understanding of history. And the more of those chains that you add, the more accurate your picture becomes and the more you kind of understand how we came to be where we are today. Mm -hmm. And I think if you just are studying that one food chain, that one perspective, you are missing out on so many of the experiences and the events that were going on around that. Um, even if it is, even if it is accurate that those things did happen, you're just missing out on on the bigger picture of what was happening. And the more that I researched this and the more I found, the more I, you know, you realize, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And so it made me think, oh my gosh, how many more perspectives could you dig around? Even just for one, you know, around one event, there's, there's so much that once you start digging that you realize, oh my gosh, we, there could be a book about this and this and this, and <laughs> it would only serve to add to, to our perspective and, and to our understanding what really happened. 
I, I love that you took this on and you, you did that and you broadened the horizons and, and you're, you're taking it out there to educate and teach and you're, you're sharing it with your own children and so many others. I've just so enjoyed this conversation. I, I have to ask, what are you curious about next? Like, what's, what are you thinking about next? Is, is there anything else on your mind or where are you heading? Yes, I've already, well, I promised my family, they've been extremely supportive, but I promised them that I will take a little break over the summer. But I do have an idea for, for a, another book, getting back sort of to my science writing roots about scientific literacy. And what I found as a, as a science writer early, earlier on in my career was that I thought, oh, I'll, all I need to do is just break down you know, difficult research into digestible language, and then people will just get it. And I'll be able to explain all these things to them that and sort of bridge scientists with, you know, with the lay person. I'm not a scientist, but I can sort but I, I can kind of bridge that gap. But what I found is that a lot of people actually don't really ever learn what science is. <laughs> they might come up, they kind of come out of school having memorized some stuff and having done some, a few experiments in the lab and stuff, but, but don't, fully understand what science is and how scientific evidence can benefit us. And so I have an idea to sort of really delve into that and, and try to explain that in a way that, that most people probably didn't get in their education. So that's sort of next on my horizon, but it's just, I haven't started researching it or, or working on it yet. Wow. So that, that is amazing. So you're, you're really taking on kind of like re-ingesting things into people because of the limited context that they got when they were educated in, in school and from mm -hmm. one perspective. And That's that, right. that is incredible. So in order to get these projects done, which are, you know, pretty fairly big undertakings, do you, do you have like a writing routine um, or schedule or process that you hold on to to make sure you get the work done? Not so much right now. I mean, I, I guess, uh, not a schedule, but I guess a routine. Right now, mostly we homeschool in the mornings, mm -hmm. and then um, my girls are old enough that they're they're pretty independent. So a lot of the afternoon, they're playing or they're working on some independent work, and I get a lot of work done in the afternoons, mm -hmm. and then oftentimes in the evenings after they are sleeping. So which is I right now I'm sort of in this new phase of life where they're where they're much more independent, and so it, it's pretty freeing to have. <laughs> extra time to be able to have these big, these bigger chunks of time where I can really get work done. That's great. And you know, the, and that's really the truth of the matter is a creative person is not just usually solely creating. They've got, you know, a day job, they've got other mm -hmm. businesses they're running, they've got families, they've got children, they've got horses, they have, you know, other things that are to health, taking yeah. care of their health and going to the gym, they've got all these other things going on. So the most key thing I heard what you're saying there is that you make the time when you can and you just make sure you keep plugging along and, and That's right. you know, touching it as often as you can. I, I like to say touch it every day. Yes. Somehow, because then it keeps it fresh and real in your mind. Yes, I think that, yeah, that's exactly right. And for me, I wrote this this book in very short chapters because I was covering a ton of information. And so each section is very short. And that really helped me mentally because I could write a draft of it in a day or two and feel like I'd accomplished something. I think if I'd had these long chapters where it took me, you know, weeks and weeks or months to, to, um, to finish one, it would feel like I'm never making any progress. So I think setting very small. So for me, short chapters was how I could measure progress. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very helpful to have some measure to feel like, okay, I am moving forward. I am moving forward. Well, and that makes, that makes sense too. I mean, as a reader, I 
particularly if learning learning something deep, like educating yourself, shorter chapters. I mean, I I always prefer a shorter chapter over mm-hmm. a longer, and and to write a short, shorter chapter helps you progress forward. But you're also benefiting the reader because I prefer the shorter chapters too. Because yeah. I I hate laying in bed and like I'm tired, but I want to keep reading. I'm like, how right. long is <laughs> right. is this over? Where can I stop? That's right. You know, because yeah. I I'm always committed to like finishing or getting to another subject head or something. Yeah. You know, it's like. <laughs> That's how I feel too. <laughs> no, so that's great. Julia, I'm so glad you reached out to me. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I'm so excited about your book. Thank you for the Thank contribution you. that you've made. Can you share with readers where they can find you and more information about your books? Yes. So as my husband promised me when I took his last name, I'm the only Julia Saplop in the world, or at least on the internet. So you can find me. Um, my website is juliasaplop, S-O-P-L-O-P.com. Uh, that is where you can find information about both my books there. And you can also link to my other, my photography business where I have a more extensive blog. You can find it linked through there. And I'm also on Instagram at Julia Saplop. And that's where I do yeah, most of my social media presence is there. Fantastic. And I will link to all of those places so you can get directly to Julia in the show notes. And thank you again for the gift of your time. I, I feel like we could have talked for hours and hours and hours. So <laughs> Thank fast. you so much. I've loved our conversation. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.